glass, ice, pour. Hello and welcome to Whiskey and Rye. I am your host, Ryan Charles Brown. I appreciate you joining me for another episode. I'm very excited to share this interview with my dad um, that uh, I recorded a few months ago. I was in February. I was able to go back home. Uh, I was home for two weeks. And uh, over the course of that time, dad and I kind of kicked around some ideas. And then one night we sat down with some whiskey and uh, we had a really amazing uh, discussion. So I'm really happy to share that with you. Uh, part one of, of, of that discussion um, with you in this episode. But before I get into it, there's a exciting opportunity that I want to share with you all. I've been able to partner with the uh, hosting service of this podcast. Podbean is who I use. Uh, and I've partnered with them to be able to provide an exclusive link for anyone that is interested in uh, using Podbean to host their podcast. Um, I uh, The nice thing about Podbean is they do offer a free service. So you could sign up and it costs you $0 a month and you can host your podcast for free, which is a really nice option. Uh, but they also just one level up. Uh, they have a $9 a month option, uh, which is what I've signed up at. And, and with this, you get uh, a, a really, uh, some really beneficial tools that you don't get with the free, um, the free level. The first thing that you get is great is unlimited space. So if you're looking to do a show with some regularity, unlimited space is really important. So you get unlimited space, you get advanced site design, which is what I use. Um, so I don't have to have another website. Uh, I just host everything to their site and you, I've got the ability to change that up. And that also comes with a free mobile optimization as well. So you get a mobile site that looks really nice. Uh, and then you also have the ability at this $9 level to include ads, which is if you're looking to monetize your podcast, that's really helpful. So um, if you're looking to uh, host through podcast, Podbean and all of these sound really great to you. You can use the uh, link that I'm going to provide. It's podbean.com slash whiskey rye. That's podbean.com slash whiskey rye. And I'll include that in the show notes as well. So um, definitely check that out. Um, they have great levels, great service. So um, go to podbean.com slash whiskey rye and sign up. Um, last thing I want to share is that I've had a few people reach out and uh, ask how they could sh- support this show financially when I've just been blown away by people's generosity that they've wanted, that they've even considered that. And so um, what I have done on my Podbean website, which I'll include in the show notes, um, I now have the ability for you to donate to the show. So if you want to, you know, throw me a little bit of money every now and then, or if you want to do it on a a regular basis, um, all of this will help cover the operational costs of doing this show every single week. Um, And again, I'm just so overwhelmed by uh, people even considering wanting to donate to this show um, that it's very humbling and it uh, it's just it means a lot to me so um, very excited to bring this episode to you um, I've been holding on to it for a while like I said we recorded this in February um, but there's so much that we share in here and so much that I learned about my dad and um, just things that really um, even now we're still talking about them even it's so many months later now so um, here it is part one of the interview with my dad Gary Brown Dad, thanks so much for being here, and thanks for agreeing to do this. Well, thanks, Brian. It's great to be here, and uh, this is a, a, a very interesting interview for, for us, and especially to be able to record it and um, uh, reach out and have it available to the people who listen to you. Yeah, I think uh, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while, and uh, I think that our story as it evolves and has it as it has evolved has is very unique and I think has has a lot to offer um and and I think one of the things that I really enjoy about our relationship and where I'd kind of like to start our conversation today is that um 
generationally, uh, we have grown up in very different generations. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the things that are happening today. And, you know, I'm here with you now in Michigan. I've been able to be here for a couple of days and I've been back here with you. And um, that's been wonderful. But we, we've noticed and we've talked a lot about how we've grown up differently in different generations. And one of the things that I'm really interested in and one of the things that's helped me in my journey uh, to being a man today is learning about what it was like for you as you were growing up um, being... Um, experiencing I should say a lot of the same same things that I've experienced right now as a as a man and we've had you know some parallels throughout our life um, so I would love to know um, you know you shared with me in previous conversations what it was like for you uh, growing up you were a middle child you have an older brother younger sister kind of in the middle uh, you have dealt with parental expectations and a lot of the same things that I've dealt with um, but generationally, what was it like for you in that time to experience some of these expectations um, while you were going through uh, your own journey to become a man? Well, I, first of all, I think that um, everybody should know that I'm a lot older. I'm 76, so um, I grew up in childhood in the 60s, and so I graduated from high school in 1960 and went on to college. and. Um, that um, uh, the world was a different place then and vastly different than it is now with computers and internet and all that. Um, I think that at that time, it was sort of, you know, you went to high school, you graduated, you went to college, you got a degree, you got a job, you got married, you had a family. You know, that was sort of the, the, the way things went. And if you didn't do that, um, something was was wrong and so the expectations were that you would you know become successful by going to college and getting your degree and then getting a job and you know I did have an older brother and and you know younger sister she was six years younger um, and uh, um, I don't know I, I, I a lot of I, I never really thought about being the middle child so much I think there you know obviously there were things uh, my brother Bill was a really good athlete and, um, you know, he, he was always a, a role model or somebody that I looked at um, with respect, and, and, and he was that. I, I kind of grew up, I, I was kind of a late bloomer, really. I was a little kid, and I had asthma and allergies and stuff, and so I really didn't get into athletics until later, you know, when I was, was in, in high school, junior, senior in high school, and then I kind of, all of a sudden, I grew about six inches in one summer, and and, you know, started uh, um, playing football and doing stuff, and, and so uh, uh, that made things different. Um, I think one of the, the biggest things was in terms of expectations. <clears throat> when I was in grade school, we lived next door to a doctor, and, um, um, you know, I kind of expressed an interest in medicine and becoming a doctor, and for some reason, I'm not really sure too too you know, for sure, but that kind of stuck, and it was like, well, you know, Gary's going to become a doctor, and he's going to go to medical school, and all of that, and <clears throat> what was, what what I didn't really focus on was that, well, I, you know, at that time, I didn't know what I wanted to be, and so, you know, I kind of got pushed into that, taking pre-med courses and doing that, and so by the time I got to be 18, 19, 20, I didn't know what I wanted to be, 
but that expectation was front and center and it was like oh Gary's going to be a doctor so the end result of that was that I was a miserable failure and wound up flunking out of college and had to stay out for six months get it together and then go back to school get my grades up and um, you know, kind of go on from there, and it was kind of obvious to me and everybody else, I didn't want to be a doctor, wasn't going to be a doctor, going to do something else. Yeah. So that's just, you know, I, I guess the, the, the lesson there was that, uh, um, you know, you have to have time as a kid to figure out what you want to be without somebody saying, well, you're going to be this or you're going to be that, so that took, that took maybe longer than, than it should have been, so... Um, I, I didn't really mature until I was, you know, a little bit older. You know, and I think that's something that it, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, you talk about time having, you know, being a kid and then, and then moving into adulthood. One of the things I've been really interested in, um, and one of the things I wish if I were to go back and, and study, uh, I have a background in psychology, um, and I wish I would have studied more sociology and learned more about rites of passage, uh, because I really think that is something in the West, when I talk, you know, when I've talked, I've had these thousands of conversations with men, I'm kind of asking them a lot of questions. I kind of always come to this question, well, when do, when do you know you became a man? What, when was that moment? And not, in fact, not one person has been able to say, well, it was this moment, or if, it, if they do say, well, it was this moment, they have to really think about it and say, well, that is that really the defining moment? Um, and so I think, you know, it's really interesting that you were talking about how you uh, were starting to adapt the narrative of being a doctor by taking classes and kind of just fell into the role of it. Um, there's no, there was no rite of passage, though. Uh, there was no opportunity for you to... Uh, feel like you were empowered to make that decision or to really feel like, well, is this the decision that I want to make? Uh, because it was, again, something that was kind of just given to you, which I think is nor was normal for the time period. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, for parents, parents shouldn't push their kids. You know, I, I in a way, I think my mom really pushed me into that because she wanted to be able to say, oh, my son, the doctor, you know, that yeah. kind of a thing. And it was kind of an ego thing on her part. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I never really talked to her about it. But I I wasn't given a lot of latitude to say, well, maybe you should be a musician or maybe you should be a biologist or work mm -hmm. for the DNR or something. I, you know, I had a lot of interest. I was a good student. So I think that contributed to um, the fact that, you know, I could have gone to just, you know, I had good grades. I could have gone to any school. And um, so it was just like, well, you're smart, so you'll be a doctor. Um, but I was, you know, I loved music, I did get involved, got involved with a band, I played in a band, I loved that, I had a lot of fun, but um, I think, you know, parents shouldn't push their kids into things, um, even though the kid might say, oh yeah, I really like gymnastics or something, and maybe they don't, but, mm -hmm. you know, kids need a chance to, when you talk about growing up or being able to self-direct, you know, yeah. masculinity, a lot of it's leadership and your own leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you need to try a lot of things and look at a lot of things and have the, the latitude or the ability to, to really investigate things to see well, what it is you really like. Because growing up is hard enough 
and um, discovering who you are and what you want to be is, is kind of a tough thing, but you can't do that unless you're given an opportunity um, to, to investigate. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe this or maybe that and part-time, I don't know, part-time jobs, stuff like that. But um, I really, it, it you know, career-wise, it was a lot later in life until I um, was able to kind of find a niche. And then, um, as it turned out, um, in the late 60s, I uh, lost my deferment um, and wound up getting drafted and went into the Army and wound up, um, this was in 1968, spent a year stateside and then was sent to Vietnam in 1969 and spent a year in the Mekong Delta. And I guess that that whole year was was really, you know, if you're talking about something that changed my life, that was it. I mean, that was a yeah. major life-changing event that really told me a lot about who I was and what I wanted. And there was there was kind of an anthem to me um, when I came back from Vietnam. I was a medic in the infantry with the Ninth Division, and so I saw a lot of you know stuff that many people didn't see. You know, horrible, wounded, and and it was just it was the worst year of my life. Um, but when I came back, I was thankful that I did come back. I was really felt blessed that, that I made it through. Um, but I did tell myself, it wasn't, I told myself, I said, no other time in my life will be this bad. This is the, nothing else will be this bad in my life. I am going to dedicate myself to, um, making my life meaning, meaningful, you know, like, there, there was some reason that I made it through without yeah. getting killed. So there was some, I don't know what the reason is, but there was some reason. But that I was going to work really hard and make my life, make, you know, something out of myself. And that was kind of a, you know, big step forward for me. So I came back and was stationed at a big hospital in San Antonio. And I was an army officer. I'd, I'd gotten a commission when I was in Vietnam. And I went to graduate school and uh, got a, a master's degree in healthcare administration. And so um, that was a big step forward. So, if, you know, for me, in terms of when I grew up, uh, the Army gave me a lot of opportunities on leadership and responsibility and being responsible for other people and, you know, uh, life-saving things, you know, where you, yeah. were, you were supposed to go out and bring people back and do things that were way above and beyond what, what anybody might see in the, the course of their lifetime. So um, that was, I think, the biggest thing in terms of leading my life uh, and, and you know wanting to, to really make something out of myself. I think for a lot of men in your generation who, who served, they would probably point to being drafted or enlisting as their rite of passage, that boot camp. Yeah, I didn't want to go. I mean, yeah. it was it was obvious. I had a choice but back then. A lot of people don't realize because there is no draft now. But mm-hmm. you know, you got a letter in the mail and you had to show up, or else you, you had two choices: you went to jail or you went to Canada. Yeah, I want to. Or I you went in the army. Yeah, I would love to know that narrative around uh, around draft dodging. You know, what was that? What was that narrative like? I mean, I'm sure you knew people who were like, "Yeah, so, sorry, I'm I'm getting that." I mean, did you know anyone that 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 avoided the draft and that no, actually moved? No, no. In fact, I I didn't know anybody that got drafted. Um, the 
the crowd that I was with, I mean, the guys that I was hanging out with, they were a little bit younger, they were in the band, and they were, uh, they were still in college. They were a couple of years younger than me. So they had, they had deferments. They had deferments, uh, okay. And, and I worked at that time. I, I had my degree, and um, I was working, and uh, uh, I actually didn't know anybody that, that either got drafted or that dodged their draft. You would see on TV about, you know, guys burning their draft cards. Right. And, doing stuff like that. I didn't know anybody like that. I just saw it, but I, you know, I never thought about going to Canada. It never was, it never was a choice for me. It was like, Hey, I, well, they got me. Yeah. I'm, I'm going. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, so I, for me, I, I never looked into dodging the draft. I was just like, well, it's your duty. You're American, uh, drafted. You're going in the army. And so off I went. I think that's an important I, you give yourself a lot of credit for not thinking about like draft, like dodging. But I think I don't think a lot of people. I guess maybe if you would really ask a certain subgroup of people, they would actually say, "No, I actually re- really thought about it. I actually really thought about saying no, or I really thought about leaving it." And one of the conversations that you and I had um, in in leading up to this was talking about how one of the aspects of being a man and and I guess you could say with masculinity is not is not running away from your responsibilities you know so I think even even making the choice to say I'm not going to run away from this I'm going to take I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do this you mentioned uh, even though knowing this was probably going to be the worst year of your life you're going to go and you're going to do it anyway and I think that that is is a really important part to the conversation that we're having right now because for me in my life uh and to speak a little bit about my generation i'm not as confident that we would have that same mentality now i can't speak to that and i'm not and i have a lot of friends that served in the military and that's not to say that they wouldn't serve in the military had the draft come back and and that they had to but i guess i'm just going to say for me personally I can't say with 100% confidence if there was a draft right now or when I was of age, if I was drafted, if I would have not thought about leaving that responsibility behind, I may have thought about it longer than you had. And I think that's something that's, that's a unique component about my generation that I don't know if we understand responsibility in the same way that your generation understands responsibility which is why i think this conversation about masculinity is really important because part of masculinity and being a man is standing up to responsibility and i'll just say for me in my life um i have not i have not really been given the uh the tools nor have i been given the experience to understand the importance of stepping up and actually saying, no, I'm going to go through with this. I've had the privilege to be able to say, well, I'm actually going to not go through with this, which now looking back into my 20s, now as I'm in my 30s, I'm realizing that those shortcuts have actually cost me more in the long run. Um, So I think you know, a roundabout way to saying some of those life lessons you were trying to teach me as a kid are finally starting to, they're finally starting to, to ring true, you know, because some things you just can't avoid and you shouldn't, you know, even yeah. though you want, even though you really, you really, really want to. Right. Well, the, you know, I think a lot of people right now, unless you are, you know, kind of a senior citizen, 
but for the younger, the millennials, and a lot of people that would be listening to you, um, back in the 60s, yeah, there were a lot of similar things to there are now. They were mm-hmm. huge anti-government, anti-war uh, marches and riots, and you know, in the 60s and 67, and there were a lot of people that were totally against this war. And by the way, I was too. Mm-hmm. I wasn't for this. I I thought it was a was a total, um, you know, just a. I, I just I was very much against it. In fact, when I was in Vietnam. I wore a peace sign around my neck on some IV tubing <laughs> that that uh, I had. We we gave the you know the the fist sign mm-hmm. to everybody and the 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 v, v for victory and you know I was in um, uh, a, a, a unit. We were at at that time we were the southernmost U.S. infantry base camp in all of Vietnam. We had no U.S. troops below us and. Um, you know, we were just uh, we were just all brothers, and um, actually, I was a minority. There were way more uh, Hispanic and African American troops there. I would say two thirds were were um, either Hispanic or African American because they couldn't get out of the draft. They were drafting them like crazy. But we were family. We were all together, and so you know, in the war, it didn't become. It wasn't us against the Viet Cong. It was all of us together just trying to survive and get the hell out of there mm. after a year and not get killed. Yeah. And um, so you would do any. You never left any of your brothers behind. It was just a different mentality. But the interesting thing was if you if you take now 2019 and what's going on in America, and then back then in 1967, 68, 69. There was a tremendous amount of unrest uh, in um, uh, America, so I, you know, I wonder why people go in the military now mm-hmm. with all the, you know, multiple, um, multiple uh, deployments you have to face, and yeah. you know, come back. The <clears throat> Vietnam was was one one and done. You went if you were drafted, you were in for two two years obligation. If you enlisted, it was three years, but you did one year in the United States and one year in Vietnam, and then you came home, and that was it. It was a 12-month tour, and that's it. And then you were out, so that's kind of the way it went. And hopefully you got through all right. But I don't know. I just I didn't really. It wasn't really a choice. It was it was a crazy adventure, and fortunately I made it through in one piece. I think a lot of people may stay in the military and may view it because it provided so much for them it's such a formative time in their life and i think a lot of people of this generation they're looking for that moral compass or they're looking for that grounding factor to help them feel like they've got a community or they've got a purpose or something to do with their life uh which is why they would enlist and i still think that despite all of the polarization with our 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 you know, the political climate, and anything, I still think that at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that just genuinely love this country and believe what they believe in what um, it stands for. And so I think they, they feel a, a, a duty and they feel a call and a need to, to step up and serve. And I, and I applaud that, you know, I do, I, I, I applaud that. Um, but you had mentioned uh, um, something about 
uh, this wasn't a choice. It was kind of something that you did. It was going to be a crazy year of your life, but you wanted to kind of make the best of it. What do you feel was the biggest lesson you walked away from after your, your time overseas? Um, well, you know, there are a lot of them. Um, I think that, um, you know, just, just, just a footnote, I would have stayed in, in I, I kind of liked the Army, even despite the fact that I spent yeah, a year in Vietnam. I mean, the, and the Army, you know, kind of like me, they made me, they were going to promote me um, to captain, they were going to pay for my school, um, they were going to pay, you know, I would, I would be temporary duty to go to graduate school, they paid my tuition and, and paid me as a um, captain. It was a pretty good deal. And I could have got free education while getting paid to go to school. But what would, what the deterrence for me was is that shortly thereafter, I would have recycled back to Vietnam, and that was just not acceptable. So, yeah. you know, I, I turned that down, although, you know, they really did like me. Uh, but the Army gave me a lot of opportunities, and I think the, the one thing I got out of it was that there was a tremendous amount of confidence. I mean, when I look back and see what I accomplished and what I lived through and some of the just hair-raising, crazy, mm -hmm. scary, unbelievable things um, that I experienced taught me that, hey, you know, there, there were a lot of things I could do. So I had a lot of self-confidence that I could go out and really make a good life for myself having lived through that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. That's something that for me, I've had to kind of create different things in my life to give myself confidence, like moving away to New York and kind of living in the city and then uh, living in Los Angeles now for the past eight years and, you know, doing some of the things musically, I had to kind of create my own, uh, my, my own boundaries. Cause I think you need, you need to know kind of what your, what your limits are to, to see how far you can go. You know, and I think I've I've always felt like I've not reached my limit or like my, my, my potential, you know. And so that's been something that I've been kind of seeking to, whereas I feel like you were sort of just like thrust into what your potential yeah. was. Because you got to do a lot of experimental things when you were over. You mean you got to fly, you know, on yeah. missions. Right. You were You were learning different, you know. Yeah, different culture. skills and different culture. You were learning. You were learning a lot of different things, and so for me, that translated into moving to New York. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't the same because there wasn't. I, I still wasn't experiencing things because I was just kind of like living. You know. Well, I think you know. And just a side note, I think a lot of people. There are a lot of vets that don't talk about their experiences, and I'm sure yeah. for guys who were in Afghanistan or. Uh, Iraq or you know whatever it's it's a it's a painful memory and um, you know it's just not something you say oh yeah this happened to me when I was there but it, it was just so bizarre and you saw so many things that um, you know just people just can't relate to it so you don't talk about it because I can't I can't explain to people what it's like when you know you're living in this jungle and it's a hundred and 20 degrees and the bugs are as, as you know the 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 uh, uh, the bugs are so big they can eat right through a pack of cigarettes through the foil and everything and then start eating the filters and the rats uh, there's so many rats that yeah we we had a couple of guys there, there were about 1100 guys in our base camp it was a um, 
battalion size and and so these guys stayed up all night to catch the rats and they had so many rats they had to figure out ways to drown them burn them shoot them i mean it was just crazy and these are these are these rats are like big as cats and you know i mean it just they're 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 these things that you see that you live and go through every day and it's just like what yeah i've never done that and and you know it just goes on and on and on and on uh but um but having lived through that and and you know come home which was the goal uh you think man you know i made it through that i can do just i mean you really do get a lot out of that because it's like uh i experienced this this horrendous thing and i lived through it and i made it and in the meantime you know helped people and did things and experienced things so then you think well i can you know get a master's degree and start my own business and you know be successful so yeah. that that and and that's a combination of leadership self-confidence uh you know a lot of things so people need to you know when you're thinking about i'm not sure it's just one thing but experientially it's a series of things that build you up to a point where you can look at yourself and say hey look what i did that mm-hmm. was pretty good you know yeah looking back you know it's just like yeah if you were a good athlete and you were you know, led the league in home runs or something, you would, you know, you'd feel pretty yeah, good about that. You'd know you're a good that. hitter. Yeah. Any, you know, anything like that. Yeah. And that would give you confidence as you continue to move through exactly. life. Exactly. And, and you continue. Yeah. Like, yeah it yeah. just builds. Yeah. This builds. Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, that's something that I'm glad that you, you went through. I mean, you always encouraged me to do, to go into the military. And I, I you know, I, I never quite understood. For me, I was always, I think I was always afraid of getting out of my own context and getting out of stuff that I can control. You know, uh, I, I, I thought that growing, growing up, one of my misconceptions of masculinity was that you always had to be in control, that men were always in control, you know? And, um, I think that was a, 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 a misconceived notion of masculinity that I now, um, am realizing that's, that's actually an opposite, uh, there's an opposite quality of masculinity that that those who try to control don't really get to experience life to its fullest um so that's why i never really i think that was one of the main things and just being afraid you know of 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 what i might learn about myself i mean kind of that shadow work you know learning how to confront my own insecurities i mean i even now uh am i'm I, I uh, was avoiding putting up some curtains in our apartment, you know, because I didn't want to, you know, mess it up. Screw and so, up. yeah, I didn't want to screw it up and take a long time or look silly in front of my wife. And so, you know, I think you, you talked a lot about confidence and having that. I think for me, understanding a, a healthy, uh, what a healthy version of confidence looks like and, and, and a knowing, uh, an understanding of your own skill is important um, and I still think, again, uh, going back to that rite of passage, um, when you are, even when you're, when you're, when you go through all the things that you go through, you go through basic training, you go through all this stuff and you're, you, you are definitely kind of torn down and you're not exactly lifted up. Um, but eventually as you get through basic, you have people in a, of authority in your, uh, in your barracks and your ranks who, who start to notice you and start to say, hey, you know, good job with this. Or you were, you were actually promoted 
from a, an enlisted office, enlisted man up into an officer. So you were given, uh, you were given some affirmation, and I think that's really key too. As as you're going through it these is. things, is getting that yeah. affirmation from people that you respect. Um, that is that's a necessary component of masculinity that that I don't think will ever change. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. I I saw both sides. I spent a thirteen months as an enlisted man, and then I spent. Um, the last part of my, um, then I spent two years as an officer. So yeah, I saw both sides of that. Well, you know, I think that, um, it's a process, but you know, when I think about it, a lot of times when, when you think about masculinity, it's not these, it's characteristics, but you kind of pick somebody and you say, I want to be like them. I want this guy, this guy is my ideal of a man. You know, it could be some famous person or somebody you know usually it's somebody you know but even in high school you see guys who are good athletes or have a lot of dates or they're just good everybody likes them or they're mm -hmm. a good student or there's something about them but you notice that people gravitate to them they have leadership that you know they, they there are things about them that other people recognize and they give them this these this leadership thing and say so like oh that's my you develop this ideal of what it what it is and so you kind of pick that out and you gravitate to that or you want to be around it or you see yourself doing that and so i i think a lot of it is is role modeling mm -hmm. and so you know back to the parental thing i think you know parents need to understand that they are role models and dads are role models for both their daughters and their sons in terms of things that they want to share with them not force them to, but share with them. And mm -hmm. and that un unknowingly, I, I think, you know, they always say uh, a, a guy always wants to marry someone just like his mother. Hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and it's kind mm -hmm. of a subconscious thing. Well, I think it's true. I think daughters want to marry somebody like their dad. Yeah. It's the, you know, they really admire that. So I think there's something to it. I, I, uh, I think it's a process that, that continues... It could be, you know, it's a, it's just a, you, it's a developmental process of becoming a man, and then it's individualized. So, being a man for a person is what? What are the characteristics? Uh, leadership, uh, strength, courage, uh, success at work. Uh, you know, there, there's just a lot of different things that people will gravitate to. So it's very difficult to say, oh, oh this is it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is the, this is what it is. I think it's different for everybody, and it just takes a couple of things: being at luck, being at the right place at the right time, finding really good friends and role models, and then being open to you know what it could be for for you, and probably most importantly is having the desire inside to say, yeah, I wanna, I wanna be a man. I wanna demonstrate these things to others that that are uh you know likable that other people want to do yeah i absolutely agree with you i think there's a there's a there's a standard definition of likability yeah. that that um me, that men want to fit into um and and i think there's kind of a moving target i think with so you've listed a few things that that uh, are incorporated with or associated, I should say, with masculinity. Uh, but I think there's new things that are being associated with masculinity or that are being expected of masculinity. Things like vulnerability, um, 
you know, more open and honest communication. Um, and then even things like compassion, you know, I think you see, you see more men being active, uh, much more active with raising their kids and having a more active role in, in that. So I think that that requires other components of, of a personality that maybe not have been associated with masculinity that are now being associated with masculinity. And that's part of where I'm starting to see a need to have a conversation about what does it look like to be vulnerable or how do you uh, approach conversations that you may not have approached before. Um, and, and that looks like, you know, talking about things like parenting, you know what I mean? Um, one of the things that my wife and I uh, have uncovered is that, and that most couples will probably uncover, is that men and women parent very differently. You know, we're going through we're going through sleep training with Reese right now. He's five months old, and I'm every everything that my wife has been doing for the past few weeks with Reese, I've been asking and suggesting that we do for about a month. You know, so I think he's I think he's ready for it. You know, I'm wanting to push him. I'm wanting to really challenge him. Um, but I haven't been able to communicate that in a way to her that made her feel comfortable to right. say like, yeah, I'm ready to do that too. Um, so she had to kind of come by it on her own and, and that's, that's fine. And I think, you know, um, that that's going to happen and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you're always going to be able to communicate and, and get your way with your partner just through being able to talk about it. Um, but I think that the, the, the sort of ideal man that you're talking about, um, for me, I I actually uh, try to avoid an ideal man because sometimes that ideal man, like, he's a real dick, and I just I can't I can't be that guy, you know. Yeah. And like, even like uh, certain things, like you know, that I wanted to do, even when we were here, you know, this week, my ideal person would be a little bit more this or see a little bit more that see this person or I would do a little bit more here I'd be able to give a little bit more here and I'm realizing that man I just can't I just can't do that and so my my ideal man I think that comes that that is now shifting to where that has to come more from inside who you are and less about who that who culture says that ideal man is um, because I, th I think what what's happening is men are not able to men today and young men today are not really able to identify with this cultural uh, man that they that they are kind of given and they're realizing like my family my my partner my wife my whatever they require a different type of man for me so how do I be that man and then also kind of like still operate within society and still have friends. Because one of my biggest challenges is um, is keeping guy friends in my life and having really good male friends. Um, I just, now that I have a wife and I've adapted some more of these qualities that aren't, you know, I'm not very competitive. I don't get in a fantasy football league. I'm not doing the... And, you know, the fantasy drafts or any of that stuff, like, I, I, I don't do those types of things. And so I'm, I'm really noticing that there's a lack of a community of other men that are like that, that are kind of out there too. So that's why I'm so interested in kind of bringing this conversation um, to, to a broader audience and kind of 
peeking into some some places where uh, I'm looking, you know, I've had these conversations with men in, in the car, and now I'm looking to kind of invite a broader audience into those conversations because I feel like there's a community that's being built uh, of men that are like me. Uh, it's just it's just not quite there yet. It's still it's still underground. Well, I think it's a fair question to ask, but I it's it's it's. It's something that I don't think anyone's ever going to be able to put their finger on. I mean, the the um, the evolution of becoming a man for for each individual person is such a, a unique part of their journey. And you know, it does have to. It's an internal thing. It comes from yeah. within you. It's not external. You know, I talked about looking at somebody else, but when you look at them, you don't you don't want to model exactly, but you want to see well, what is it about this person that that other people like and what is it about them that I that that I like and what is it about them that I would prefer to choose or vice versa I you know I have this kind of a throwaway I used to use this you know I taught um, you know a while ago and and I didn't make this up but I think it's pretty good is um, you have to be responsible and this you know people might remember this you have to be responsible and that is able to respond. Mm. And it sounds really hokey. And <laughs> I, I've talked to people after some of my students. They would say, oh, Professor Brown, that's, uh, that's so cheesy, you know. But you have to be able to respond to things. Mm. And I think, you know, that's, a, that's really a characteristic of, of being a man, of being, you know, someone who says, you know, I am able to respond. I pay my taxes. I take care of my kids, I work in the community, I give service at church, I am able to respond to things, even tragedies, I can respond. And so the, 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 the converse of that is, I, oh man, this just, this wiped me out. Now mm -hmm. for the rest of my life, I mean, I go to the VA and I see guys who are devastated by their service, who, who just never recovered from the mental trauma or whatever it was about being in the army, they their their lives have just been a wreck. They're yeah. homeless. They can't get a job. They just, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know what they are. We we all see them on the street, you know, mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, but if you aren't able to respond, how can you call yourself a man? If you know something happens, you say, "Oh man, I can't deal with that." Yeah, I'm I'm going the other way or. Well, maybe that's a response. I don't know, but it's just, it's it's puzzling. It's not one thing, it's a whole bunch of things, but it's mentality and the, the motivation mm -hmm. to say, yeah, I, I can deal with that. I have confidence. I have, uh, you know, the, the ability to do that or way back in my stock of memories, I saw, I, I did this and that was rough, so I can do this or I'm going to try to do it or whatever. Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning into part one of my interview with my dad, Gary Brown. Uh, this interview was really special for a number of reasons, but um, one is we just, you know, we laid the recorder out on the table. We didn't have any mics. We didn't have any, and I just had a few notes written down and we just kind of went. So it was great to hear him share so much about, you know, his life. And we really kind of fast forwarded through a lot of things and, and went into Vietnam, uh, which was really a big part of his life. And I think, you know, uh, if you can tell that, that really was a big part of his shaping his manhood and, and his idea of what 
what masculinity uh, means. And, and so uh, I think it was important for him to share so much about that. And so uh, as we move into part two, you'll hear a little bit more about him uh, in the second phase of his life. And that's where uh, I come in and my sisters and uh, he talks a little bit more about fatherhood, which was really awesome. So I hope you come back next Monday to hear part two of the interview with my dad, Gary Brown. You can follow along with me on social media at Ryan Charles LA. And you can also follow along with the show at Whiskey and Rye Pod. want to thank the Deep West for providing the sweet tunes as always. And um, make sure you check out the new uh, look to the site. Yeah, head on over to the Podbean site and uh, see what you like. Um, maybe review one of your old favorite episodes. And uh, if you find that you're listening on iTunes a lot, one of the things that really helps us out is leaving a five-star review on the iTunes store. So if you have a moment to do that, uh, give us a shout. Five-star review, that really helps us out. So we will pick this up again next week. Until then, I raise my glass to you. Cheers. Cheers.